Welcome to High Grade and our Natural Resources Podcast. I'm here today with our editor, Nick Debosio, bringing you the best and most relevant insights from our High Grade archive. This is High Grade. You think you're rich, uh, but in reality, you're not rich. The resource curse theory takes a short-run phenomenon and projects it to a long-run outcome. The most important drivers of investment are the quality of the resource, the infrastructure that's available, and the governance environment. Industrial development accelerates the speed of social change. Creative destruction, people losing, people winning. What we need to fix is politics, not the resources. Nick, welcome to the Natural Resources Podcast. Hi, Osa. It's uh, very nice to join you. It's great to have you with me, especially since we're launching our series from the archive today. Tell us, what's this about? It is uh, really a simple concept. Um, We have now more than four years under our belt. Mm. We have an archive full of uh, interesting conversations. We've seen some amazing people through our studio, and we've published some amazing video interviews. Mm. Now, over time... People have been um, asking us to put those interviews into podcast formats. And and frankly, that's exactly what we've done. So are filmed conversations now turned into podcasts? Yes, yes. And in 20 years, we may want to call this uh, history podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But most of them are relevant now. So we curate them and we put them into context. How are they relevant today? How do they continue to shape the discussion? Mm. So you, our listeners, are now surely wondering how is our first From the Archive podcast shaping the discussion today? Well, we start with an interview with Tom Burke on climate change. Um, And this, of course, is a topic that is not going away. We filmed the interview in 2018. And if you don't know Tom, uh, he's a renowned environmentalist and journalist and a pioneer in climate change and sustainable development thinking. Uh, for example, he coined the term green growth already back in the 1980s. And the reason we wanted to start with this interview is because climate change, as you said, remains a hot topic. And remember, it's not free from polemic. Mm. There are different views, there are different opinions from scientists, um, the different projections. People have questions, the reasons behind changes in climate, and particularly what needs to be done about it. Mm. I know uh, for some people out there, this remains a controversial issue. And that is another reason we like it. (laughs) Um, And and we will open high grade to contrasting opinions on this topic as well. But regardless of where you stand, Tom lays down the basics very well. Mm. Look, I've known Tom for decades. He's a thoughtful and clear thinker. And I think that is also evident uh, in this conversation. Absolutely. Um, And you mentioned this lingering controversy around climate change. And I actually Mm. started by asking Tom if he gave any credit to the arguments by climate change skeptics. And here is what he told me. No, about the same amount of credit as I would give to people who were arguing the earth was flat. Well, that that is Tom in a nutshell, uh, strong-minded and very compelling. Yeah. And uh, look, there's much more in this interview. We should now leave you to enjoy the rest of this absorbing conversation. This is High Grade. 
So are we here squarely because we've been burning fossil fuels? Yes, and what matters is the combustion of fossil fuels. It produces more CO2 uh, in the atmosphere. That means the atmosphere heats up exactly as if it were a blanket and greenhouse. There are other gases which contribute as well, but the main bulk of it by a long way is from the burning of fossil fuels. So fossil fuels and the extractives is really at the heart of the story of climate change? Absolutely at the heart of it. They are both the makers of climate, but they're also the takers of the climate because they operate in uh, very extreme circumstances, very dry circumstances, for instance, or very cold circumstances. And I read fascinating uh, thing the other day that in the Arctic, the oil companies are now having to refrigerate the ground because they can't operate unless the uh, ground is cold, permafrost, in order to be able to continue their operations because climate change is warming the permafrost. And how prepared are companies to work with these changing conditions? I think the best of them have at least recognised there's a problem. The best of the oil companies are pre predominantly European. I think the American oil companies, by and large, are quite a long way behind. The national oil companies, who are actually, in a way, the biggest suppliers, have not shown any sign of beginning to uh, respond to the, uh, what climate change means for their future revenues. But I think some of the European companies have started to think, but I wouldn't go much further than that. Let's go back to the science. What are the climate scenarios that we face? The two, really, that matter. The governments of the world, on the advice of scientists, have said, look, the threshold of dangerous climate change is two degrees centigrade of additional uh, warming. Uh, and nobody's really argued with that. Some people have argued that actually it, uh, it's even that is too far and it's probably a lower temperature. That's the danger of climate, dangerous thing. So you're in a scenario of either climate policy succeeds and we stay below two, which means we have to get emissions from the fossil fuel industries down very fast indeed, or climate policy fails and we go above two degrees, in which case the other, the rest, the 90% of the corporate world that isn't a fossil fuel industry begins to pay the price. And you say very fast. What are you talking about then? How many years? Well, technically, we already have all the technology we need for the world to be carbon uh, neutral if it wanted to be. And it probably won't damage the economy, but it will damage the pattern of change, the pattern of winners and losers. So it's very politically difficult, but it's not economically or technically difficult to move to a low carbon economy, certainly by 2050, which is what you'd have to be if you wanted to have any degree of confidence at all that we're going to stay below two. So that's an issue not of getting the technology or the economics right, but of getting the politics right. What technology are you talking about then? Well, you've got loads of technology, depending on where you look, whether you're looking at just simply the obvious thing to do will help people with electricity, energy consumers most, is simply to increase energy efficiency uh, with which we use it. But then you've got renewables, uh, wind and solar, a lot of different kinds of solar uh, to come in. You've got now storage, meaning that you can do solar in very large quantities. Uh, you can use and niches. There will be niches for things like some biofuels. So there's a vast range of technology. And we've only just started, if you like, to really think and there'll be a lot more technology as we go. But in a sense, too much of the debate on energy policy is about technology choice. And actually, when it comes particularly to 
electricity, we're really talking about different systems, a different architecture for the way in which we generate, distribute and use electricity. So it's a more complicated choice than simply looking for some kind of silver bullet that will get you off the hook. So what policies would you like to see put in place? I think the most important policy in lots of ways is simply to set emission reduction targets that uh, take you onto the right trajectory. We've got on with Paris, we got onto the right road, but we're not going far enough or fast enough down it. Now, there's going to be a role in some places for using a carbon price to get particularly things like agriculture. We've got lots and lots of decision makers where you can make a difference at the margin and add all those differences up. But the best use of a carbon price is to generate revenues which you will then use to lower the risk of investments in low carbon technologies. So it's not so much the price impact because we don't have time for that. It's using the revenues to alter the cost of capital so you can do what you already know how to do faster. And why hasn't that been implemented yet? Is it political will? Yeah, it is. I mean, our, the biggest resource in relation to climate change that we're short of is, is political will. And to be a bit fair, I mean, these are quite difficult social adjustments. And, and I don't think as much thought has gone into the social adjustment has gone into the technology development. So you can get rid of your, as we're going to, you can get rid of your coal uh, mining industry but you will create loads and loads of jobs in the renewable industries, but there won't be the same jobs for the same people in the same places with the same skills. So you really have to think that through, and I don't think enough has been done to think that through, which in a sense leaves you with a conflicted political problem. I think we have more intractable geopolitical problems uh, in relation to the national oil companies. I mean, as I remind a lot of my colleagues constantly, look, what we're trying to do is eat Putin's lunch. What do you think he's going to do about that? You know, there's going to be quite a reaction from those states that are hugely dependent on their revenues, particularly those states like Saudi Arabia, like Russia, where there's limited legitimate authority in the political system. Let's look specifically on the extractives industry. Why is the climate change debate uh, relevant to the extractives? Is it because minerals production is particularly CO2 intensive? Well, well there are two dimensions. It depends which part of the extractive industry you're talking about. If you're talking about the oil and gas industry, then the big, um, uh, biggest risk is climate policy success because it basically puts them out of business. The short-term risk is that climate's already changing. And that means operations are getting more difficult, the costs are going up, uh, and it's, so it, it's harder for you to operate. If you're the mining industry, as it were, the other big part of it, you have a real problem because you have basically put billions of dollars into a hole in the ground, quite often in arid or semi-arid or otherwise environmentally sensitive areas, that you can't move. And if climate change destabilizes the political context, you're in a, bit, a lot of trouble. And, and you know, you, you take a big mining investment, you're thinking about an investment that may not begin to pay back for 10 years, and maybe takes 15 to 20 years before it's paid off the cost of its capital. So there's big risks. You know, if we go on as we are, we're going to be in a two degree world, certainly shortly after the, turn, the middle of the century. Let's go back to then CO2 emissions from the industry. What they are talking about now is carbon capture storage as the solution. Do you agree to that? I don't understand why there is so much uh, focus on carbon capture and storage. One thing is absolutely clear. It's not going to play any role in the power sector, which is the biggest consumer of coal, for instance, and increasingly of gas, simply because there's no alignment along the supply chain. 
So the people who supply fuel and the industries that are buying it and the people who've got to store it simply don't have an alignment of value. I think there will be an important role for carbon capture and storage in specific places where you need it for smelting, for instance, for uh, aluminium and, and uh, steel making, where you need it in bit a bit for the chemical industry. There'll be a few places. But if you look at cement, for instance, cement um, in Europe, there are 394 cement mills. You're not going to collect all the carbon up from them and bury it. It's never going to happen. So where you're dealing with industrial uses of, of uh, carbon that you can't reduce by technology, which is the reductive use, then you've got to see it as a waste management problem, mm. not as some problem that there's an economic solution for. There's a problem you've got to dispose of dangerous waste, like any other dangerous waste, and you've got to pay for it. Now, what about consumption? I think it's easy for people to blame the industry, the oil, gas, um, coal industry. But the reality seems to be that people, they like cheap energy more than they want green energy. I don't know that that's true. Uh, people like cheap energy and they like green energy and they leave it up to business and governments and the rest of us to sort out the fact they want both of them simultaneously. And I don't think that's going to change. By and large, when you look at opinion polling in terms of energy choices, overwhelmingly, not just in Britain, but in most of the developed world, people overwhelmingly favour renewables over uh, other sources of supply for their electricity. I don't think actually it's right to think that um, somehow going green is more expensive. If you want to lower bills for people uh, in the developed world in particular, the single best thing you can do is invest in uh, energy efficiency improvements. That gets your bills down extremely fast uh, and very uh, uh, reliably and confidently. During your career, you advised both oil and mining giants on climate change policy. Are companies doing enough? I don't think so. I think some of the oil companies are beginning to think about what an impact climate policy success will have and are beginning to think not just about lowering their own emissions, but about how they might have to change their business model. Mm -hmm. I think the mining industry, which went through a pretty rough period in the sort of 20s, noughties uh, or whatever it's called, I think they have basically destroyed their capacity to think about these problems. They're not going to be, uh, other than the coal industry businesses, they're not going to be affected uh, by climate policy success so much. They'll be affected by climate policy failure. They'll be affected by uh, inability to deliver a return on investments they've made as food security or water security uh, declines, which is a consequence of a changing climate. So is there a business case for them to, to think about these issues? Well, I think they've got to think about it, but much more because they need to engage with governments and with civil society organizations, which have a shared interest in maintaining stability in the world. But it's something they're not used to doing. I mean, in other words, they've been very good at coping with their endogenous risks, risks to things that they control, but they're not shown much capacity to cope with exogenous risks, those risks which are a result of things that third parties do or don't do. 
So when you entered the private sector, that was in the 1990s, how has it changed since the dialogue within the companies? Well, what has been interesting for me to watch is the mining industry, which when I joined the industry was kind of in a bit of a trough in public esteem, finding it difficult to recruit graduates, made a really big effort to change its position in global agenda, particularly in relation to sustainable development, and succeeded in doing that, and then got into enormous trouble as uh, an industry because of overreach, because it got, got caught up in a sort of commodity super boom and then has destroyed all that capacity it built up so painfully. So I, don't, I think it's not quite fallen back to where it was in public esteem when I joined in the late 90s, but it certainly lost the capacity to, uh, as it were, move forward, which it did have at one time. Now, looking at policy making, um, the Paris Agreement has become the main reference point on policy. What is the Paris Agreement, really? Well, the Paris Agreement basically is an agreement to keep the eventual rise in temperature below two degrees and to try to keep it even lower than that uh, uh, at one point below 1.5 degrees. That's the core of the agreement. And then tied onto that are a whole series of agreements about uh, uh, there's a mechanism so that people pledge what they can do, review what they've promised to do to see how far they've gone, and then pledge to do more. And then around that, again, there are some uh, devices for making sure there's transparency, everybody can see what everybody else is doing, that there's a rule book about how people count things and so on. So it's quite a complex agreement that mm. basically sets us off on the right road to tackling climate change, but doesn't take us down that road fast enough or far enough. And that was recognized when it created that mechanism for, as it were, ratcheting up the commitments that countries have made. So it was a really important agreement, but it's a long way from being the last word. Now, without real penalties, do these targets that the country set have any real meaning? I think that's, that's people confusing international agreements with the sort of sports uh, game. It's not, it's, not, it's not a boxing match. You know, countries, I mean, first of all, the thing to remember is the countries didn't make these agreements uh, because somebody put a gun at their head. They make those agreements because they understand how dangerous a world in which above two degrees is, dangerous for them, for their prosperity, their stability, their security. So nations didn't do this uh, in some way in bad faith. They did this because they thought that was the best they could do at the time. It's not good enough, which is why there's a mechanism to ratchet up. Will countries cheat a bit? Yeah, of course they will. Will they, will they seek to undo it or somehow disable it? No. And I think what was interesting about the reaction to President Trump mm. announcing that he was pulling out was it actually made the other nations come closer together and be more determined. And that's because this is a real threat to everybody's prosperity and security. And most governments recognize that, whether they're going to be very brave or not. They recognize the scientists are right about climate change. I do feel, though, that there is a general feeling that we are running out of time. Are we going to solve this mess before reaching the tipping point? I think you're right about the importance of the time factor in this. And we're not used to acting under a time constraint. Lots of the kind of economic instruments we use don't really work in a bounded set, uh, unbounded set like this. They work when you can try it. And if it doesn't work, try something else. If we get this wrong, we are all in a lot of trouble. And definitely before the end of this century, we're all in a lot of trouble. So we have to come up with measures that get us to a, uh, a 
particular point by a particular time. That's very unusual. We've never done that in any international policy that I can think of before. Uh, but our choice here is either we figure out how to do it or life gets very uncomfortable for everybody. Thank you, Tom. This was an interview recorded back in 2018. And thank you all for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this From the Archive program. Before we say goodbye, I'd like to acknowledge our great partners in this adventure, the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development through BGR and the Inter-American Development Bank. Make sure to subscribe to our channel on whichever podcast platform you are using. We will be back very soon. Until then, so long.